Jesus. I found myself very stretched this week, and so if you'll grab your listening note, if you are with us today by way of internet or social media, welcome. You should have those notes downloaded to you by now, and welcome you to join us. And uh, it's good to have visitors with us today. I'm Mariah. I know one by name. I've known her for a while. And so I just wanted to embarrass her if I could, but I probably can't. So, it is good to have you with us today. It's a new year. It's time to reflect. I often do that. Find myself in not just at New Year's time, but different times. Many times on birthday or anniversary or those special days. We find ourselves looking back. And I've said something as a young teenager, I know, because I hated history. Hated it with a passion. And I know probably some of you have. Why should I care about what happened? Whatever. Well, I think it was Sir Winston Churchill that says those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And there's been several sayings after that, you know learning from those that have gone before us and those kinds of things. And uh, If I had known more history, maybe I wouldn't have made so many mistakes. But it's a time to reflect. It's a time to make some promises and resolutions that I'll probably break the most of them by, at least by the end of January. You know, one that I've had to make and I'm being encouraged by more, just several in several ways is to uh, change my eating habits and uh, that'd be good for me and uh, so I, I, I'm hoping that that'll last a little longer than the end of January and uh, resolve to do some things that maybe I haven't done as rigidly as I may have should have done those things in the past like exercise and all those fun things you know we love to do but I want to challenge us today. It's a passage of Scripture that really caught my attention during this season. And I've chewed on it and chewed on it and chewed on it. And, and I, can't, I can't do anything with it other than just continue to read it and, and study it. And it's, the more I study it, the more I find I don't know. And it's almost frustrating to a point when you, you look at something like that. It just gets deeper and deeper as I go along. But it's a passage of Scripture out of Isaiah chapter 9. And the following verses are really familiar to us, but this is one that I don't guess it really caught my attention, but it says this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death on them a light of shadow. That was the, the prophet Isaiah talking to a generation, a group of people specific children of Israel, but it's just as relevant today as it was when he spoke it some 2,700 years ago, when he penned the words. And it's a verse of scripture that has really caused me to do some deeper study. And again, the more I study, the more I find I don't know. He 
just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper. But the one thing that God has really just drilled into me is that we still live in a day. Nothing's changed. It's that history thing. I heard it said this way, and I hope I get it right. There is no new news. It's just new people hearing old news. And it's the same thing today. We still live in a world. We live in a community of people who are walking in a very dark, gloomy place. Whether it be physically in their life, spiritually, emotionally, just the, the, the things of life that have gotten them down, but nothing's changed. We still live in a world that, uh, in, in our country in specific, that started out as a nation who realized that God was the creator of all things, and we've done just like the children of Israel did. We've repeated that history because we didn't learn from it. And we're a fallen nation because of it. But I want us to go back a verse there and look at that. It says, Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed at when he first when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. Nevertheless. So that means there was something that was said before that that needs to have attention. And it was the prophet Isaiah addressing the children of Israel. Specifically, the, the southern kingdom of Judah. He was the prophet to them. But he was speaking as well to, to the northern kingdom. It was as though what's happened is God's chastisement, the punishment. But in the next breath, Nevertheless, it was as if God was saying, there has to be payment. There has to be punishment for your deeds. But nevertheless, I can't wait till the punishment is over. Because I have some good news. And that's verse 2. Upon them, a light is shining. I'm so thankful that God still has a light. The church. That's the way he chooses to do it. Through the church. A light that shines. Matthew chapter 5. It's a light that is not to be hid under a bushel. It's a light that Jesus lit himself. He came as the light of the world and then he sent out the church to be the light. And he set this church in this community to be a light to a community that's dark that's cold to the gospel of Jesus Christ, indifferent to the things of God, calloused, hurt, whatever the reason. And it's just like the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at, or the, the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at. It comes as a people who have found pride in themselves, have found themselves in a place of idolatry and apostasy, worshiping things that they made with their own hands rather than the creator of heaven and earth. And God says, I've had enough. 
blow my spirit away. I'll destroy physically and spiritually. That's what had happened to the people of Israel. God's chosen people. That's who they were. That's who Isaiah was talking about. It was God's chosen people. First in your notes today. It was a it was a people that God had specifically formed into a nation to worship and their primary task was to worship God and to spread the news of the gospel throughout the rest of the world. But they failed horribly this time. Sound like the church of today? History only repeats itself, it never changes. God's chosen people, who were they? It was let's go back in history. God created man in the beginning, in Genesis. Man failed. You and me, not Adam and Eve, you and me. It would have been just the same if it had been us in the garden. They just happened to be the ones that had history written about them. I'm glad it wasn't Harold and Gina. Then the whole world would be reading about us forever. But it was Adam and Eve, and it was you and me that failed. But out of that failure, God desired to bring his people back. And he desired to do that by forming a nation from the children of Israel. It was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And the twelve sons of Jacob would form a nation. The twelve tribes of Israel. And they would be the people that would have the responsibility of taking the gospel to the rest of the world. But they failed. God's chosen people couldn't get along. And they split as a kingdom. You can look at this as the first church split. It was First Baptist Church Israel, then became First Baptist Church Israel, and First Baptist Church Judah. I'm picking on the Baptists because we are Baptists, but that's how churches many times get started. It's through splits, and that's not God's desire, but that's just the way that we do it. God would much rather us stay together unified as a church and then go out and plant a church where there needs to be one. But we can't get along just like the children of Israel. And those two little places that were mentioned there in verse 1, Zebulun and Naphtali, very significant. We'll look at that a little bit later in the ministry of Jesus. But that's where the main part of the trouble began. They were the Las Vegas of Israel at that time. There was a lot of crossroads right there, and a lot of the idolatry and the apostasy started right there in that little spot. And it's very significant because that's the same little area, the general area, where Jesus began his ministry. In the darkest place that he could begin, in that little area. But we're still a people walking in darkness. Nothing's changed. And then. Isaiah comes on the scene. Isaiah is a prophet to Judah, the southern tribe. He comes on the scene in, in chapter 6 of Isaiah, and we won't read all of that for the sake of time, but I want to go back and look at that. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died. Just out of nowhere, Isaiah is writing and he's talking about the idolatry and the apostasy and why you're in this situation. And it begins chapter 6 and he says, In the year that King Uzziah died. It's almost as though he had a ADHD moment. His thought pattern went in a different direction. And he said, this is how I was called to be a prophet to the people. 
I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above it, he went on to describe the things that he was seeing. And then he was shaken. And the posts of the door were shaken by the voice of him who cried out. The house was filled with smoke. And Isaiah began to realize his filthiness. We talked about that Christmas Eve night. How the light shows just how dirty we really are. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Why did he use the lips? Because out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. What, what really determines or what really proves who we are is determined by what we say out of our mouth. And Isaiah said, it's because of those things that I need my lips clean. And the seraphim flew to him, having a live coal, and he touched it on his mouth and said, your iniquity is taken away and your sin is purged. And Isaiah, and this is where I want us to be this morning, Heard the voice of the Lord. Whom shall I send? And Isaiah said, Here am I. Send me. Will we be a church that takes a life? And you can go ahead and start thinking about it because the challenge at the end of the service is going to be what are we going to do to reach our community? And I'm going to ask you to write it on that little card. Some ideas. Prayerfully pray through those things. What would God have us to do in the next year that we haven't done in the past year? I'm so thankful that we have the food pantry once a month. It's such a blessing to see people have needs met. And we hear people telling about that and the amount of food that's given away. It's a glorious thing. We don't need to stop doing it. But we need to make sure that we add to that. How are we going to reach the people through that ministry? I received a phone call on Friday. Bless my heart. You know, when you get those phone calls and it said North Carolina, and I'm thinking, I don't know anybody in North Carolina, but I know that the church phone is forwarded to my number, so I answer it. And the lady says, and she told me her name, and I can't remember it. I'm from Samaritan's Purse. And you know, you get those kinds of calls and you go, oh no, what did we do wrong? And I, they've never called me. She said, I just want to say thank you to your church and the generous gift this Samaritan's Purse. And I said, let me tell you something that's amazing about that is because we're just a little congregation of about 60 people. And I said, I was blown away by the generosity and the number of boxes that was put together. And she went, really? And that's not to puff us up this morning, lest we become prideful, but that's just to let us know what God can do through us if we're just willing to do it. And she went on to say thank you and, and at that point I had this kind of my memory part of my brain had shut down and she began to tell me a little few more things but, but I just want to say thank you but in doing those things we have to make sure 
when we connect with people in a way that brings them back into the church. We're not going to be strong in individual houses. There are a lot of Christians in our neighborhood, I promise you, that don't go to church anywhere. Because they're not upset with God, but they're upset with organized religion in the church and what they went through with the church. And we're going to be a different church. I'll share a little bit about that at the end of the service. But Isaiah is on the scene. King Uzziah, the king of Judah, had just ended a very prosperous time. You know when you read the Bible, and you're going to get there pretty soon. You get in Chronicles and Kings and you go, Read all this history. It really does fit with the rest of the Bible. It really does. And when I read it, and I'm going, what does that mean? How does that fit? And every now and then, God gives me a little nugget, and I get to see how it fits. And we're going to look at one of those this morning. I want you to go back to Second Chronicles. Let me find it. Second Chronicles, chapter 26. And here's why Isaiah mentions Uzziah. Isaiah or Uzziah had, had just served as king for 52 years. You see, when the nation of Israel was first formed, they were, they were ruled by judges and, and they were placed all throughout the land. And then as they began to grow, things changed. Uh, the kings came along. King David served. Saul served as a king. And this is the reign of time when Uzziah served as king. He was 16 years old when he became the king. But he had ended a very prosperous time. And it was a, a unique time in history for the children of Israel because this is the time when they really began to feel their self-sufficiency, which is a very dangerous place to be. And they began to turn to idolatry and worshiping, as the Bible says, things they made with their own hands. They began to see what they did was greater than what God had done. That's the danger in having prosperity. But listen to what Second Chronicles 26 says. Now all the people of Judah took Uzziah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father, Amaziah. He built, he laughed, and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his father's. Uzziah was a very learned man. He took what he knew and he used it to enlarge the, the area of Judah. They took back some land that had been taken from them. They built cities. They did all these great things, created jobs. You will see that when we read this. Uzziah was 16 years old when he became king. He reigned 52 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoiada of Jerusalem, and he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. He was one of the good kings. And God allowed him to reign for 52 years. According to all that his father Amaziah had done, he sought God in, in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God, and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Wow. There's a, there's a key right there we can learn something from this. Just keep our mind and our eye on him. Now he went out 
and made war against the Philistines and broke down the wall of Gath, the, the wall of Jebna and the wall of Ashdod. And he built cities around Ashdod and among the Philistines. And, he, and God helped him against the Philistines, against the Arabians who lived in Gerbal and against the Midianites. He began to prosper. He began to enlarge the land. His fame spread as far as the entrance of Egypt. He became exceedingly strong. Isaiah built towers. You've seen the map with all the gates and the towers around Jerusalem? Isaiah was the king that built a lot of those. I'm not going to read those, but he built many of those. He dug wells. He, he had much livestock. He also had farmers. Had an army of fighting men. He went to war by companies. According to the number on the row was prepared by Geo, the scribe, and Maus of the office. And it goes on to tell about how he had prospered, how he prepared them for the army, and how even in building that army, he created jobs, and the everyday working man prospered under his eye. In other words, he had a slogan, make Judah great again. Nothing's new. I wonder if Trump got that from that reading. I'm sure he didn't. But then pride said he. Go down to verse 16. But when he was strong, his heart was lifted up to his destruction. For he transgressed against the Lord his God by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. He went just a little bit too far. His fame had spread. He became strong. Then he entered into the temple where the priests were only supposed to go. And the priest responded to him and said in verse 18, It is not for you, Uzziah, to burn incense to the Lord, but for the priests, the sons of Aaron, who are consecrated to burn incense. Get out of the sanctuary, for you have trespassed. You have no honor from the Lord God. And Uzziah became furious. Pride had set up in his heart. Look what I've done. And you're going to tell me I can't come in here and burn incense? And God intervened. It says when he was angry, while he was angry with the priest, before he could ever cool down, God put judgment on him. Leprosy broke out on his forehead before the priest in the house of the Lord beside the incense altar. And Azariah, the chief priest, and all the priests looked at him. And there on his forehead he was leprous, so they thrust him out of that place. Indeed, he also hurried to get out because of the Lord had struck him. He was a leper until the day of his death, and lived in isolation. And he was a good king. You see, when we first started reading that, he said that he did right because he did what was right in the eyes and in the sight of the Lord. What happened? Why? What happened to the state of God's people? With all this prosperity, Isaiah addresses that. Go back and look in chapter 3. Why were they walking in darkness? Let's look at the state of God's people. Pride and evil had separated them from God. They had ceased to care for the orphans and the widows. History again. What did James chapter 1 say that undefiled religion is to care for the orphans and the widows. And look what the Bible says here in Isaiah. The reason that they had 
lost their place or their favor with God. Look at that in verse. Let's look at verse uh, 14 in Isaiah chapter 3. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes, for you have eaten up the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your house. They had taken advantage of those less fortunate. Moreover, the Lord says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with outstretched necks, pride, and wanton eyes, walking and minting as they go, making a jingling with their feet. Therefore, the Lord will strike with a scab the crown of the head of the daughters of Zion, and the Lord will uncover their secret parts. God's about to lay waste to his own children because of pride. At all. They had turned from God and failed to be grateful for the prosperity that God had given them. They had become self-sufficient in their own doing. One of the most prosperous times in history, other than the time of King Solomon, was about to come to a screeching halt called the fire. In a period of darkness, was about to enter the land of Judah like they had never seen before. was the remedy? What was the remedy? Again, nothing's changed. It's, it's still the same. Let's look back. The remedy. Repent. Cease to do evil. You get to fill in a bunch of notes here. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rebuke or bring in front of those in authority, the oppressor, defend the fatherless, fatherless and plead for the widow. Listen to what it says in Isaiah chapter 1. And I, and I don't understand Isaiah's thinking here. Why did he start with the remedy? But listen to what he says in verse 16. Repent. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. And notice that that M there is capital. It's not Isaiah's eyes. He's talking about the Lord. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. You've done forgotten everything that you were taught. You don't even know how to do good anymore. You've got to relearn that. Seek justice. Bring those that are guilty before the, before the authorities and rebuke the oppressor. Defend the fatherless, the orphans, and plead for the widow. James knew his history. He knew what God was looking for in service. So familiar. Isaiah says in verse 9 of chapter 6, God says, Go and tell my people. Listen to Isaiah's response. How long? How long do I have to keep repeating what they already should know? And God answered, and I'm paraphrasing here, until I have destroyed everything they worship that comes between them and me. Because that's what happened. If you go read through chapter 7 and chapter 8, God destroyed the city. And then he went back 
and burned down what was left, that only a remnant, a small part of the children of Israel would remain because of their pride and their idolatry. Listen to what he said. Until the cities are laid waste and without inhabitants, the houses are without a man. The land is utterly desolate. Then in chapter 8, we see where Assyria comes from the north, tears apart what had been such a very prosperous area, lays to waste everything that they had, Everything that they ever hoped to have. Did I put a map in those notes anywhere? It may be too small to see, but I want to point out something. Right here, this little bitty spot is where God was focusing on in this passage of scripture we just looked at. This area right through here, Syria, Assyria, and over there the media where the Persians came from. It's Iraq and Iran of today. Unrest. They've never, never resolved their differences. It's just different people fighting over the very same thing. And the struggle that's gone on and on in history has never changed. But God said in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, He's going to send a lot. And then we see on down the prophecy, the, the, the ones that we're really familiar with in Isaiah chapter 9. You're going to see, we just celebrated Christmas. For unto us a child is born. That's the life that Isaiah was talking about. Isaiah's prophecies, there were many prophets, but the prophecies of Isaiah are so clear, and many of those prophecies have already been fulfilled. But there were so many that were so clear as we read through Scripture. It was almost as though they had already happened when Isaiah prophesied what was going to happen. When you see them take place and the, the clarity at which they happened. Isaiah foreshadowed the virgin birth of Jesus. I'm going to read a few of them. He said there would be a son called God. Nations would seek the counsel of Jesse's descendant. That Babylon would be attacked by the Medes. God promised to restore the Jews. We've seen that happen. The Messiah would be preceded by a messenger, John the Baptist. We're going to look at that in just a minute. That God's salvation would reach the ends of the earth. God would never forget the children of Israel. He prophesied that Jesus would be spat upon and beaten. That the Messiah would be rejected. That Jesus would die for our sins. Many of these over and over and over. And that's just a few. That were so clear. Even in his writing. It was though they had already happened. And when you look at. 
the many of those that have happened and how things came together. I'm thankful that there's always going to be a life that will never be extinguished. Governments may try to squelch it, may try to put it out, but it will never be extinguished. That the light of Jesus Christ will always shine. Why not? Why not? Have the favor of God that it would shine through the East South Baptist Church and all the If it doesn't, it's not because God didn't choose it. It will be because we refuse to allow it to shine for us. But why did they get into this place? Why did they become so overwhelmed with the Assyrian? You can read that in chapter 8. I'm going to talk through it just a little bit. Isaiah says you're going to wander through the land, dejected and hungry. You're going to get to a place in your life in verse 20, I think it's verse 22, when you're going to look up and you're going to curse God. Because of all the things that have happened that you brought on yourself. Does it sound a lot like the land you live in today? The parallels are so close that it's time. The Bible says that you're going to look up. Well, even in that looking up shows that they understand where their help could come from. And there are many people in our community today that know that are living in darkness that are struggling with this life, I don't mean financially, but I mean just spiritually struggling with life, they know where their help comes from. But maybe they just need a little bit of encouragement. Somebody that will really be the church of Jesus Christ and, and really put a loving arm around them. Why not Eastside Baptist Church for 2000? I think we live in a day that really starts out verse 9 or chapter 9 nevertheless we live in a, a world of people that have struggled because of sin but I really believe that God is saying nevertheless nevertheless The same way that I brought the children of Israel back. That little remnant, nevertheless, the light still shines. You're walking in darkness, but the light still shines. The next three weeks, I want to be talking about, and I think it's in the bottom of your notes there, What kind of church will we be? You know, before we do something, 
we really need to be intentional about doing And I really believe that we need to look within ourselves and make sure that we're three things. And I, and I stole this. Uh, well, I didn't steal it. He gave it to me. Uh, I got this from uh, James McDonald. I received an email. He said, use it. Do it what you want. We're going to talk about these three things over the next three weeks. To reach our community, we need to be intentional, being a church that will welcome without judgment. And I think we do that pretty well. But I think we need to be intentional with that. There's some things that we're going to talk about how we can go beyond just knowing that within ourselves, but how can we do that intentionally where people will feel that and feel well. We need to love without conditions. And I think we do that pretty well. But how can we do that intentionally and forgive without limits? Not 70 times 7. But forgive without limit. Oh, I struggle with that. But I'm a man. I'm human. And I struggle because if I've already forgiven you four or five times for the same thing, you ought to learn by now. Maybe I got that from my daddy because he didn't tell you but once or twice and then, you know, the boom came down. We need to learn to forgive without limits. We're going to do that. I want to go to Matthew chapter 4, and I'll end here with, with this. That little area of Zebulun and Naphtali, is where Jesus began his ministry. Why did he go to the darkest, lowest of places? Why did he choose to be born in a stable? a hole hewn out in the side of a rock. I heard somebody the other day on the radio, and I, I don't know if you heard it or not, but I disagreed with so many of those statements that were not biblical, but were conjectures of things that were, I believe, dreamed up in somebody's mind, or I don't know where they got the ideas. That it really wasn't a rock in a cave like we think about a, a, a manger in a stable today, but it was really a back room in somebody's house. And I thought, Where'd you get that? It was on a pretty conservative radio station. I was surprised that they even aired. But I believe it was the lowest of the lowest to prove one thing. Or maybe more than evident, but in my mind it was to prove that, that Jesus would go as low as he could go. Say the lowest of the lowest. That could even be me. But Matthew records in verse 12, Now when Jesus heard that John had been put into prison, he departed to Galilee, that little area right there. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the regions of, this is why you need to read Isaiah, Second Chronicles, and Kings, in the regions of Zebulun and Naphtali, the same two places that were recorded in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. That it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. The land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, by the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And upon those who sat in the region, in shadow of death, light has gone. We live in a people that probably on 
more than one occasion, many have decided that death would be better than living. We need to reach for the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is our time. I really believe this is our time. We've been giving, been given the opportunity to freely share the gospel of Jesus Christ with our Galilee. Our season, I believe, to see a larger than life transition in our neighborhood. They won't come. I really believe because the image the church has today. We can prove that wrong. By being a church that will welcome without judgment, love without condition, and forgive without hate. What will we do? We must commit to being the light and salt of the world. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And in Matthew chapter 5, if you go on and read, he says, you. It's like that candle we lit with the big lights that was passed on. Jesus says, you're the light. I'm the light. Will we reach the people? that are walking in darkness. Maybe you're here this morning and you're living in a place that you realize that it's dark. This doesn't look good. I want to assure you that as Matthew recorded that that prophecy had come true just like Isaiah said it would, that that light still shines today. It hasn't gone out. It hasn't been put under a bushel. It's still bright. It will but just come. We are the light of the world, Matthew 5, 14 says. There is a people that are desperate, in despair, walking in darkness, that need to see that great 